This morning we will put aside our study of verse by verse through the Gospel of John, although we will be in John, so I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 20. Uh, your bulletin has uh, a couple of verses, but for the sake of time, we'll focus only on the one in John 20, 21. Uh, while you're turning there, I'll just kind of back up a little bit for those of you um, who uh, are, are relatively new. Nathan had mentioned most of the missionaries that we support are uh, part of our church at some time or another. Uh, Preston and Sarah, who were in the vi uh, video, not only are they part of our church, but they will be with us this summer as they'll be having their home mission assignment. Uh, they'll be bringing home another child, as uh, Bob had prayed, uh, not adopted, but uh, they're expecting. Our initial assumption was that we're coming home so they could deliver here in the States, but they're going to deliver in Jordan and then come home to the States, so, uh, so they're, uh, but they will be with us, and we're looking forward to seeing them and catching up with them, and for those who have not met them, uh, you'll be blessed to meet them. Uh, but now we want to turn our attention to uh, what God would have for us and focus on uh, the mission to which he has called us to. So let's pray. Father, we, we do come at this time to uh, offer not just our, our hearts and voices and praise, but our, our minds uh, and our ears to listen as you speak, instruct, shape, and guide. Uh, may your word inform and form us as a people, individually and as a church. May you uh, bear fruit in our lives and through our labors uh, by the power of your spirit. We pray this to your glory and the joy that is ours in Christ. And it is in him that we pray. Amen. Some of you may be aware, but the author Thomas Cahill makes a rather audacious statement. He declares that it is the Irish who have saved civilization. Now, scholars debate to some extent. Nobody denies that there is truth in that. It's the extent of it. But certainly the Irish were significant contributors to the preservation of the Western culture and the civilization as we know it. And since the <laughs> says the man with the shamrock, no, uh, but... Uh, but it only makes sense then if we are going to give thanks to the Irish for saving civilization that we ought to celebrate the one God used to save the Irish. And so you'd think maybe we'd give a weekend to something like that, which many of you recognize we have done this weekend as the celebration of St. Patrick's Day took place around the Western world yesterday. But one of the things that's important for us, particularly as Christians, to recognize is that St. Patrick's Day, no matter how much fun it may be uh, for us in part of our uh, going to the parties and engaging in things, it's, it's a day that should be uh, recognized for more than leprechauns and shamrock shakes and green beer and whatever green beer makes you do that we don't want to talk about. Um, it, it's a day to celebrate. The man who was probably the greatest missionary of the gospel in history, with the exception of the Apostle Paul. Only Paul uh, is considered to have been more fruitful, more significant in their labors than what uh, Patrick was in Ireland. But what's amazing is most people don't know Patrick's story. Some of the assumptions that people have that we celebrate actually are not accurate. First of all, Patrick of Ireland is not Irish. Uh, he wasn't from Ireland. And second of all, Patrick, uh, who is the patron saint of the Roman Catholic Church, has never actually been determined, uh, declared a saint by the Roman Catholic Church, nor was he ever actually a part of the Roman Catholic Church. But uh, other than those little details aside, 
uh, the, the story that of what is true is actually far more fascinating uh, than what we tend to think we know. Uh, first of all, Patrick was born in Britain uh, at some point in the uh, late 4th century, perhaps in the early uh, 5th century, uh, to Aristat uh, aristocratic uh, parents. A uh, family that was deeply committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a grandfather that was a minister of the gospel in the, in the British church, parents who were godly in every way, trying to raise Patrick and any siblings that he had in, in the truth of the gospel. But Patrick, like many, um, he took it in but uh, didn't seem to process it for most of his life. Uh, during his early teenage years, hanging out with his friends um, uh, like many teenagers do, but one day while he was uh, probably about 16 years old, hanging out on a street corner with some of his friends, uh, he, was, uh, he was apprehended. Uh, he was kidnapped by pirates who then sold him into slavery in Ireland. And there he spent the better part of the next decade as a servant, mostly tending sheep for the one who had purchased him from the, from the pirates. While Patrick was enslaved, and as he had a lot of time to, uh, I guess, think about things while he was out in the fields and watching the shepherds, uh, he began to think about the faith that his parents had, uh, had tried to share with him growing up. And so he came to a deep devotion and commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. And after about six years of slavery, I'm not sure of the details, but he was able to escape Ireland he made his way back to Britain, but had, in his time of enslavement, come to a commitment that he wanted to be a minister of the gospel. And so he engaged to be trained um, to be a minister of the gospel in the, the British church, which, again, was never under the authority of Rome. The reality is that the church that he, uh, uh, in Britain would be far more like uh, the contemporary evangelicals in their, in their basic uh, uh, doctrinal beliefs and their views uh, and understanding of God and, and of the church. And so Patrick began to study in preparation for ministry. And during his preparation in a dream, in a vision that he understood to be from God, he felt God was calling him to go back to the very people that had enslaved him. And so Patrick, uh, heeding that call, prepared himself and eventually going back to commit his life to minister to the Irish uh, pagan people. Uh, Patrick was about 40 years old when he went back, but even during the time of preparing and when he got there, uh, we understand that he assumed that he would be killed uh, during his time of labors. And in his own writing, we, we read this uh, excerpt from one of his, uh, his journals. Daily, I expect to be murdered or betrayed or reduced to slavery if the occasion arises. But I fear nothing because of the promises of heaven. So Patrick, with the, based on a faith in our God and his calling and giving of his life, even if it means that he had to give his life, uh, he labored among the Irish people for 25 to 30 years uh, and produced tremendous fruitful ministry. We're not sure exactly when Patrick died, but tradition tells us that it was on March 17th, some point in the, in the uh, later part of the 5th century. Uh, but after 30 years, 25 to 30 years of evangelistic work, he was able to look back and had led thousands and thousands of pagan Irishmen uh, to Christ and was responsible for Ireland becoming one of the most Christian nations in the world at the time. An island that was considered too rough and not worth it for uh, the Roman church and for the Roman Empire because it just, there was no way of taming these people. And Patrick used God 
uh, used by God to go and proclaim the gospel and bringing not only changed hearts, but a, a changed culture uh, that later on God used to preserve much of our culture. And because of his labors, Patrick was nicknamed and known, became known as the Apostle to the Irish. It's a fascinating and it's a, tr a tremendous story and it's worth our remembering and, and giving thanks to God for a man like that. But one of the things that we need to recognize when we think about Patrick's story is that while Patrick was extraordinary, Patrick was not unique. And what I mean is that it's not likely that any of us are going to be called to a country that doesn't know the gospel in order that he would, God would use us and we would be the vessels through which they hear the gospel and are transformed. Uh, maybe Preston, uh, that will happen, and that's what we do pray will happen. But most of us uh, are probably not called to such an extraordinary life. But we need to understand that the thrust of Scripture and repeated in every gospel is everyone who was called to Christ is also called to be engaged in the mission that Christ has initiated or is engaged in in this world. In other words, everyone who becomes a believer of Jesus Christ is enlisted to be involved in the mission of God. And the text that I want to look at this morning it is quite clear in that there's many others that in terms of each of the Gospels expresses what we call the, the Great Commission in, in different words. And we're going to look at John's version of it here in John chapter 20, verse 21. Just as a side note, the fact that John's words are different than what you would know from Matthew or read in Matthew or even Luke's explanation of it is not an indication that they were confused. I think it's a better indication that the Great Commission wasn't something that Jesus just said, oh, by the way, before I go, let me give you one last instruction but as part of his ministry throughout, but particularly from the days that he, after the resurrection that he spent with the disciples, that he was probably repeatedly telling them, this is what they were raised up for. This is what being a follower of Jesus Christ entails, is that everyone is engaged in mission, and each of the gospel writers expressing uh, the, the, uh, that truth in the ways that Jesus had said it uh, that had resonated uh, with him. In other words, he talked about this a lot. And so therefore, each of them uh, are recording different aspects of that. Uh, but what we see in John in 2021 is simply this. Jesus said to them again, which is an indication that he said this before, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And what we see in this passage are some important things, something important thing to recognize about God, something important to recognize about Jesus, and something to important to recognize uh, about ourselves. Now, when we look, we might see the, the, the thrust of the passage is primarily about Jesus and, and then consequently about us. Just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. But we can't miss what is clearly there, but it's not the center, which is Jesus was sent, but God the Father was the sender. And the reason that that is important is we must understand that mission begins with God, that our God is on a mission, as he's declared it. Theologian J., uh, John Stott said, our God is a missionary God. And so to understand God and to understand mission, it's important that we understand that, that God, from the time of the fall, has communicated that he was on mission to redeem a people to be his own. He would bless 
gathering them from every corner of the earth, from every tribe, from every people group. That was his intent. And he expressly communicates that to Abram when he begins and initiates that mission and tells him that he will be a vessel that will be a blessing to the nations. Now, ultimately, it's because of Christ, but it's also because all those who belong to God's people are called to be enlisted in God's mission and God's great commission. Our God is on a mission to gather a people to be reconciled to him, to live in fellowship with him. And the means by which he does that is by sending. And so we begin with an understanding that mission is rooted in the very nature of God itself. Mission is not something we do for God. It's something that God is doing through us. And when we get that right, it changes everything. But God does so through sending, and first it was by sending of his son. And that's what we see John focusing on, and Jesus pointing to himself. Jesus says, just as the Father sent me. So God the Father is a sender. Jesus is the one who was sent. Which, as we, we think about that, then the natural question we should ask ourselves is this. How was Jesus sent? Because if the comparison, if that's the foundation, and our going is to be just like Jesus was sent, then we need to ask, then what ways was Jesus sent? Now, we could explore that and, and we will explore that in many ways over time. But I want to just focus on a couple of things this morning to turn our attention to. First is that, as the scriptures tell us, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then we're told, and then that Word came, became flesh, and dwelt among us for a time. The theological word, and this is one that's not, you know, one of those big and unfamiliar words, is just incarnation, meaning in the flesh. Because Jesus came and assumed the flesh that you and I have, he came to be like us. And so in the whole understanding of the incarnation, there's really two components that I think that we need to highlight. One of which is that God is present, that Jesus came to be present among us. His physical presence, he didn't just mail it in. Through years, he was speaking through the prophets and telling us about God. But that wasn't the ultimate plan for God's mission. The mission that God was on, he came to, he embodied and, be, and, and came in the midst of the very people that he wanted to reach. And then second to being present and, and related to that is he became like us in every way except for sin, is what the writer of the Hebrews tells us. And so in the incarnation of Christ, God is present, and he is present and, and, and has become like us in every way with the exception of anything that would be lacking in the godliness that we were originally endowed with uh, when man was created. But the second word is not just the incarnation, but the, the, the nature of the mission that once he was here, what was it that Jesus did? What was it that God sent him to do? And the second word I would say is holistic. Because Jesus came not just to declare, you need to believe in God and get your act straight. But he came in word and in deed. And so we understand as we look through all of the gospels and the ministry of Jesus is that he first and foremost declared over and over again, and we've been seeing through the gospel of John, that Jesus continually pointed out that the Son of Man has to die. The Son of Man is coming, will lay his life down. The death of Jesus is absolutely necessary. It is to pay the penalty that we have accrued. It is to be in our place 
So he didn't just come to be with us, but he came to take our place and he experienced the punishment that we deserved. And the good news that we are able to be reconciled to God is rooted in the fact that we are now set free of our debt because Jesus has paid the debt if we'll trust and we will believe that Jesus has paid the debt for us. And, and through that, we are reconciled. And so Jesus not only declared that he was going to die, that he had to die, but he kept pointing to that and saying, believe, believe, not just that Jesus had come in the flesh, but he had come in the flesh for the purpose to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And then as he was teaching that, he went around and he was healing people, and he was providing for people, and he did a number of things that were incredibly tangible things. Now, some Bible scholars will point out what is true is that Jesus did those things in part, and the miracles he did was to validate the fact that he had come from God so that people would take him seriously, listen to what he had taught. And that is absolutely true, but it is not exhaustively true. Because over and over again, you'll read in the Gospels that when Jesus was out ministering and he was teaching, you read this phrase in one form or another, and he saw the people and he had compassion on them. Meaning he felt what they were feeling. He felt their brokenness. He came to experience everything we were experiencing. And he ministered to them, not just to say, here's an opportunity to you know, watch this. He ministered to them because every part of you, every part of everyone born, that is created after the image of God is valuable. And Jesus came in ministry that was word and deed. He proclaimed the realities of who he was and how we can be reconciled. And he came and ministered to the tangible needs of the people that he encountered. And Jesus said, as the Father sent me to be incarnate and to be holistic, so I am sending you. And so we need to read these and read that and hear that and understand that what Jesus was doing there is he's commissioning his disciples, those who would be his followers, to go out and to minister wherever God is leading them with the same kind of components, and incarnationally and holistically, wherever it is that they, uh, where they happen to be. We need to hear, as Jesus is saying, so I am sending you, that every one of us that follows Christ is enlisted, is to be enlisted in God's missionary enterprise, to take the gospel to every corner of the earth, to every people group, so that God, through our labors, may gather to himself people from every, every people group as we proclaim the blood of Christ and we labor and demonstrate the love of Christ. Everyone. Now, someone may wonder, are you saying everybody ought to go? And I would say, yeah, and, you know, but with a, with a qualification there. Not everyone is called to be a, a missionary, and not everyone who is engaging in evangelism is a missionary. Missionary is a specific call and a unique call for some to go cross-culture and minister uh, and are ministering and have given their lives to that. But everybody is to be involved in God's missionary enterprise. And we live at a time that wasn't true before, because so I can't say that it's a biblical mandate that everybody needs to go, but for the first time in history, for the past couple of generations, everybody can go. We live in a culture that is able to access, uh, I mean, almost every place in the world, we can get there, with an economy that is able to afford that we go someplace. 
And there are so many opportunities for short-term mission that really there's no reason that we would not go, and we benefit tremendously as we go and engage in short-term mission. And so in that sense, I would like to say absolutely biblically, everybody has to go. I can't say it without authority, but I can say we all are commissioned to go, and I think that I really want to see Nathan just kind of throw his hands up and say, too many people want to go and serve on mission trips. I'd like to see that. And we have a great opportunity, and I think that we all need to ask ourselves, why would we not go at least one time in our lives? But the reality is not everybody is called to go. Uh, Preston and others who are called and have given their lives to that particular cross-cultural ministry mission, but everybody is engaged in the process. And, and missionologists tell us that there are three basic categories of how we are engaged in the missionary process. There are the goers, and they tend to be the ones that all the attention is focused to and, and well-deserved. Uh, there are those that are called the mobilizers, and not everybody has in a position to be able to do that. Mostly it's uh, those who are engaged in some ministry, so I have the opportunities. What I'm doing right now is trying to mobilize people and raise people up and, and through teaching, and I have opportunities for networking, and you know, Ben has the opportunity to do the same thing through his ministry, and some of you also have that. And then there are those who are senders. Now, senders means more than supporters. Support is necessary. You heard Preston, you heard Madison saying, look, I, I need the support. And we tend to think of support as write the check and pray a little bit. And those things are absolutely necessary. But there's far more uh, things to do than just the, uh, in, in terms of support. To enable somebody to be sent, there's a lot of logistics. There needs to be things that are done. People in preparation uh, for what the work's going to be done, the connection. Uh, there's just like any trip that you're going to take, but even more so when somebody's going to go to foreign territory, foreign to them. Uh, th there's a need of people and there's an opportunity for everyone to participate in that. And when I begin to think about that, the image that comes to my mind, I think of the movie uh, Apollo 13 or, or what they do in NASA. When I look at Apollo 19, uh, 13, the movie, and it kind of is, uh, that's probably the synopsis of everything I know about how NASA works. So if you work for NASA and I'm wrong in my illustration, please be gentle and tell me later. Uh, but. Um, but the astronauts are the ones that we focus on, and clearly they needed to go, and there are people that are uniquely qualified uh, and, and enabled and trained to go and to do that work. But it's not like a few of guys got together one day over at Langley and said, hey, you know what would be cool this weekend? Let's, get, you know, let's build something that's going to circle the moon. And that's not going to happen. And even if they had said that, it wasn't going to happen. Even though most of these guys were engineers and pilots, they didn't have the capacity to figure out what it was going to do to get some machine out of the Earth's orbit and then orbit the Earth and then get back. It took brilliant minds of a number of engineers working together and collaborating to be able to figure out that this thing that was dreamed about, could it be done? And if it could be done, how could it be done? And how can we do it in a way that with the safest and the most effective way possible? And while those engineers were doing that, there's a number of other things that needed to be done. The movie Hidden Figures that came out a couple of years ago talked about, uh, showed about uh, several women who were uh, set aside by NASA to known as computers, because they were computing the mathematical things that the engineers need to consider. And there's support crew and lives, I mean, you name it, there's any number of things that are necessary just to get a couple of guys to engage in the mission to space that the United States want to be involved in. Similarly, we need to understand that everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is called to be involved in God's missionary enterprise. And while the missionaries will be the ones that we show videos of, and maybe if some of you are like really, really rich and you promise to support Preston for his whole salary for the rest of his career, I think our missions committee would agree we'll put a picture of you up somewhere. 
But most of us are going to labor in ways behind the scenes that most people don't really necessarily, even if it's just simply to write an email or call and say, hey, we love you. We're praying for you. Stay with us when you come home. There's an important role for everybody to participate in and being senders, but it's not a matter of somebody saying, okay, I'm called and I'm not. Every one of us is called to be engaged in God's missionary enterprise. And how is it that we do? One is it requires incarnation. Somebody must be willing to go, and they must be willing when they go to become like the people they're ministering to. And this is a principle that is not only true for global mission. Something that we need to understand is a principle that works even in our own communities as we have different pockets of groups within our own community. And I was struck by Cahill's book, How the Irish uh, Saved Civilization, when he described Patrick this way. Patrick was this, in become, uh, this is Cahill, in, be, in becoming an Irishman, Patrick wedded his world to theirs, his faith to their life. Patrick found a way of swimming down to the depths of the Irish psyche and warning and transforming Irish imagination, making it more humane and more noble while keeping it Irish. See, it's an incredible picture of what he's doing, but first and foremost, the thing that struck me is I can't help but reading that and then thinking about the writer of Hebrews. We do not serve a high priest who is unable to sympathize because he is like us in every way except without sin. In other words, Jesus came to become like us, not just that he took on flesh, but he engaged and he became like us and yet he remained constantly godly. He kept the gospel in himself. And Patrick, we're told, kept the gospel faithful and yet he gave himself to the Irish people. He became like them in every way that he was able, and yet he was always different because he was shaped by the gospel. By becoming like them and by being among them, he was able to share the reason for his hope, and the effect was the gospel that he proclaimed that was never watered down, it took root and people remained Irish, but then became Christian, and their culture began to flourish and continue even though it also became in conformity to God. See, this is the call of evangelism every one of us is in. We have to remind that because sometimes in our culture, we really prefer to withdraw. You know, let's hide behind the doors of the church and we'll throw, we'll send somebody out. You know, Ben, he'll be our sacrifice at the campus. You know, we don't know what they'll do to him there. If he comes back alive, maybe we'll go visit. But, um, and the same thing with other missionaries. But to engage in the mission means we must be willing to go in the flesh. And we must be willing to remain godly, but using the words that were used to Patrick, wed our world to theirs, and then our faith, which is distinct and isn't compromised, applying it to their life in every aspect. And you can only do that if you're willing to go and to engage. And those who are called to global missions, they're called to, to leave what's comfortable and do that in a culture that's not their own, but it's a principle that we also need to embrace in our own culture. And the scope is holistic. We not only proclaim the gospel, which is absolutely necessary, but we minister to the needs because Jesus did it. And as we engage people, we feel their needs, we minister to their needs, we have reason to point them to the gospel. And while Jesus pointed to himself, we point to himself as well. We point to our hope is in one who became flesh and came among us, became like us in every way except without sin. And it died for us. Our hope is your hope. Our hope is the hope for the nations.